Lord, I pray that today that would be the declaration not just of our mouths, but of our hearts. Lord, help us to be reminded of what it is you've done for us and who you are, and may we reflect who you are and how we live, how we love others. Lord, I pray you would take these moments as we look at your word together. I pray, Father, that you would teach us what we need to learn, that you would break through where we need to be cracked. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Um, If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to take that out. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available back at the doors, or you can grab your device, your iPad, your Kindle, your iPhone, whatever you might have. And I want you to go to 1 Samuel 17. That'll be the first passage we're in this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is again one of those uh, messages. (laughs) I was thinking about this yesterday as I was doing my my final prep and praying through the message. Man, I cannot wait till we get to some of the kings that only have like served for like six days. Um, King David actually is the Bible character who has the most written about his life in Scripture. And so I am going to knock out all of David's life in exactly 30 minutes. Yeah, that ain't happening. Um, If you get a cramp in your fingers from turning pages too fast, I apologize. Our insurance will not cover you. Don't ask. Okay. Um, So King David, when you think kings of Israel, and I'll talk about this next week. It's okay. When you think kings of Israel, the man, the king is King David, right? I mean, he is is the, the one that is set up as the the goal, the, the pattern for what a good king should be. And, and, and so much so that in Acts chapter 13, um, we are told this, David is mentioned by God and God says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. I mean, right there, you've got the description and the definition of what made David such a great king. It was the fact that he was a a man after God's own heart. And I'm hoping that this morning as we walk through his his life just a little bit, that we get a glimpse of what that actually means, what that actually looks like, and that we might be able to employ it. But but before I jump in, I gotta make sure we're all all clear. Um, In in, in David, God didn't have this clean-cut, morally upright, Ned Flanders type king. If you don't know who Ned Flanders is, we're going to have a special Sunday school class next week for all these wonderful references I make that you're all like, huh? Ned, psych? What's that? Now, good news. Many of you have watched Psych since my recommendation. You're welcome. Ned Flanders, I'm not recommending. I'm just mentioning. We'll move on. But in David, you didn't have this really squeaky clean character who never had a mark against his reputation, never had a mark against his character. I mean, to be honest, he was, he was a bad man who did some good things. He was a good man who did some bad things. Reality is David was a real man. And I don't mean like he was a real man. I mean he was a real, with all the scratches, with all of the, the blemishes of, of a man, he was completely real and honest. And that's what I love about Scripture again. God never hides the ugly, does he? He lays it out here for us all to see. Just say, look, 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 look. You think you're bad. I want you to look at him. And then recognize and realize that if I can use him, I can use you. This goal, this objective to be a man, a woman after God's own heart isn't put up on the top shelf where none of us can reach it. It's actually 
quite simple, and I want to talk about it a little bit. When we, when we look at David's life, let me run through some of the, and this is actually literally, I'm going to fly through this beginning part so I can focus on the end. I want to run through some of the instances in David's life where we see both his failures and his successes, and I think in both of those, it'll help us understand a little better what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. You don't need to turn there. One of the, the big blemishes against David's uh, character, against David's scorecard, if you will, was simply the fact that he committed a heinous act of adultery. Second Samuel chapter 11, it's recorded for us. And there's a key word. So if you ever go back and read 2 Samuel 11, there's a key word that's mentioned throughout the story of David and Bathsheba. And what that key word is, sent. So what you find at the very beginning is David had sent Joab and all his men out to war, but he stayed home. David was walking on the top of his rooftop and looked out and saw a woman bathing herself. And so he sent messengers to find out who she was. When he found out who she was, he sent more messengers to bring her to himself. He, he committed adultery with her, and then he sent her home. And then you get into Bathsheba's life, and she finds out she's pregnant, and she sends word to David that she's expecting. So then David, instead of owning his sin, tries to cover it up, and it says he sends for Bathsheba's wife, uh, husband, Uriah the Hittite, who's out at battle fighting for King David, of all things. Uriah the Hittite comes back and David stands before him and says, give me good news. Tell me how it's going on the war front. Tell me, tell me how the battle is raging. It's going, oh man, I am so proud of you. You are one of my mighty men. I couldn't be more grateful for you. I want you to, to go home and I want you to, to rest, wash your feet. That's what the text says is go home and wash your feet. That is a euphemism. Just saying. And Uriah hears that leaves the palace, receives a gift from the king on his way out the door, and then sleeps on the stoop of the front door of the palace and refuses to go home. When David finds out Uriah didn't go home to his wife, he asks, why, why didn't you go home? This is your opportunity. You're back from battle. Your wife is home. I gave you the opportunity. I encouraged you to go. And he said, as long as my brothers are in the field fighting, I will not go home and sleep with my wife. David then throws a big party, gets him drunk, hoping that in his drunken stupor, Uriah would stumble home and to the arms of his wife, but instead he stays outside the house. David says, tomorrow, I'm going to send you back, Uriah. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander, and he sent it with Uriah, which is amazing. Here is Uriah the Hittite walking to Joab, the commander of David's army, with a letter in his hand. And in that letter, it says, move Uriah to the front line, fall back so that he's murdered. He's got his own death sentence in this envelope that he's carrying, and he brings it to Joab, and Joab does exactly what he is told to do. The men of the city come out, they attack Uriah, the, 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 the Hittite, is also died, and then Joab sends someone to report to David that the deed is done. When David hears that Uriah has been killed, you know what his response is? Oh, tell Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours all alike. David's response is, eh, what do you expect? You're in battle. 
after Bathsheba had finished her mourning process, David brings her into his own home and makes her one of his wives. That's a man after God's own heart right there. Commit adultery, seek to cover it up, seek to cover it up, murder a man, take a woman to be your wife so it appears that maybe she was impregnated after you were together, married. Man after God's own heart. You look at David's life and you see his parenting failures, and I'm not going to go into great detail with this, but, but his relationship with one of his sons, in particular Absalom, gets really crazy as you read through the story of David. But it all begins back in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where Absalom, I'm sorry, Amnon, falls in love with his sister, whose name is Tamar. And he decides to listen to some of his ill-willed friends, and they say, just, just take her as your own. Don't worry about it. He rapes his sister. Word gets to David. And instead of David dealing with the heartbreak, the heartache, the tragedy that is sexual abuse in his own home, he follows this pattern that is not that unfamiliar to us today. Just keep your head down, keep walking forward, keep doing your job. It'll all take care of itself. Nobody needs to know. This is not an official statement of Uniontown Bible Church. It's an official statement from Frank Taylor. That will not happen if I find out about sexual abuse. If I find out about sexual abuse, I guarantee you my first reaction is not going to be head down, let's keep walking, maybe it'll figure itself out. My first reaction will be, first, let's call the police. Second, let's call some of the elders to hold me back so I don't murder somebody. That's probably not good to say on recording, is it? Oh, well. But that's not David's response, is it? David's like, nope, don't want to know, don't want to know. Just keep going, just keep going. Don't worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And what he does by doing that, by ignoring the tragedy in his own home, by playing dumb, what he does is he forces his other son Absalom's hand. So now Absalom, two years later, you know what he does to fix the problem? He murders his brother in revenge. David certainly could have handled that a lot better, couldn't he have? Man after God's own heart. Just pretend like it never happened. That makes everything better, doesn't it? You get to the end of, of David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and he, he calls for a census. And when, you know he's in trouble. <laughs> you know he's in trouble when he says to his commander, Joab, I want you to, to do this census. Take account of all the military. Take account of all of our people. And Joab's response to him is like, hey, king, this ain't a good idea. And if you know anything about Joab, for Joab to say that, you know something's off somewhere. And yet David forces him to do it. And, and, and so he goes out to do the census. And, and, and the problem is this. When you, the law tells um, Israel that if they were to do a census with wrong motives, you would incur God's judgment. If you did the census just wrong, if you were trying to add to your numbers or whatever, I mean, there's certain details that need to be followed. If you didn't follow all the details, you would receive God's judgment. And when the census is done, Joab returns with the numbers, and you know what happens? David receives God's judgment. 
We don't know why. It doesn't tell us how David sinned in doing the census, but it can be assumed that some of the motives in David's heart were impure or incorrect and didn't follow after what God's word had said. Man after God's own heart. Commits adultery, commits murder. Doesn't deal with obvious failures in his own home. Counts the people for his own well-being. Counts the people so that his name might be large. Counts the people so that he might know how, how protected he actually is, maybe. We're not sure why, but we, we know that's a sin. So all of these things are there. How is that possibly a, a man after God's own heart? But I'm going to tell you, David wasn't a total failure. David was far from a, a total failure. I have you there in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We see some of the successes of David. We all are familiar with this story. It doesn't matter if you've been in church or never been in church. It doesn't matter if you've picked up a Bible or never picked up a Bible. Everybody knows something about the story of David and Goliath. I think all of us put ourselves into that story in a specific role, right? So I'm David. I'm Goli- I hope you're not Goliath. That'd be kind of weird, but... I'm David, I'm, I'm his brother, I'm Saul. I'm, well, here, this, just a newsflash before I jump into this. This is free, it has nothing to do with this, but just so you know, you are all inside the story of David and Goliath. And none of you are David. Every single one of you is one of the Israelites who's on the sideline freaking out and has no idea how to beat this horrible beast that stands in front of you. And yet another one comes along and slays the giant and you reap the benefits even though you never lifted a finger. We're all Israelites, and we praise God for that because that's what Christ did for us, right? Okay, back to the message. Okay, so, so we know, we know the, the successes of David. He was, he was courageous. He had this incredible trust in God. I just want to read a, a couple of verses out of 1 Samuel 17 to give us an idea of, of his thinking. Verse 45, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. It's getting ready for the battle, and David draws to come near Goliath. Goliath has just called him out, and David comes, and he says to the Philistine, you, you come against me with a sword, a spear, a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. So today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down. I will remove your head and I'll give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. This whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves because the battle's the Lord's. So I'm confident he will hand you over to us. Want to talk about courageous? That's trust. That's a confident expectation that God is going to keep his word in that moment. You've got his his courageousness as he is being pursued by King Saul throughout all the land. Saul is jealous. He knows David is the next king and he's going to find him and he's he's going to overtake him. And there's all of these different interactions that occur between Saul and David where Saul tries to take David's life. And yet throughout that entire process, David trusts in God's protection. He trusts in God's timing. He trusts that God has the right man in control at that moment and that if he wanted it to change, God would change it. David wouldn't. 1 Samuel 26 Verses 10 and 11, he makes the comment to one of his friends, listen, 
If, 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 if God's anointed stands before us, if God wants him removed, he'll be killed in battle or he'll just die of natural causes but, or God will just take him. But that's up to God. It's not up to me. I will never lift a finger against God's anointed. And that's, that's, that's courageous trust. David was an incredible warrior. If you read through the, the second half of 1 Samuel and starting in verse seven, or chapter 17, and then you read through 2 Samuel, what you find is that David is an incredible warrior who overcame every enemy that came against him as a king. He's got a record that kings would long to have, and David has that. He was an amazing leader. Turn to 1 Samuel 22. I want to point out an interesting verse to you. So King David was a great leader, and the people were willing to follow him no matter where he led. Immediately after he conquered uh, Goliath, he kind of went into service for King Saul and for Israel, and he was leading the troops. And it says that the, the troops, in chapter 18, it says all Israel loved David because he was leading the troops and leading them well. The first Samuel 22 gives you a little glimpse of the people who are following David. So David, starting in verse 1 of chapter 22, David left Gath. He took refuge in the cave of Adullam. So, so he is running from Saul at this moment, and he gathers a group to himself. David's brothers and his father's whole family heard that David was there. They went down and joined him in the cave of Adullam. Verse 2, in addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. Um, great team, Every man who was desperate, in debt, and discontented. About 400 men. Hmm. You know, we got about 400 people in here right now. Just saying. I'm just kidding. None of you are discontent, in debt, or, discon or, or desperate. That's the type of people that David had rallying behind him. And yet, he was one of the most successful leaders in all of Israel's history. He was the greatest warrior in all of Israel's history because he was such an amazing Leader, the thing we know David for, he was quite the songwriter, wasn't he? The book of Psalms, almost that entire book is written by the, the pen of David as he wrote psalms and songs, songs that we still sing to today, don't we? So here we go, a little exercise, and we'll throw this out there with fear and trepidation. How many of you uh, can shout out the name of a song that we sing that comes from one of the psalms that David wrote? Go ahead, let it rip. Good start. Let's go for another one. Uh-oh. That didn't. How about as the deer pants for the water? It's a classic. Right? How about give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. How about when heaven met earth like a sloppy wet kiss? No, that's not David. That's not David at all. <laughs> Completely something different, but... <laughs> so as David wrote these psalms, they were, became the songbook... And the hymnal of Israel as a nation, but they continue to this day to be things that we are singing, familiar, and encouraged by. So let me ask you this. Is all of those good things, all of the successes of David, you have all the failures of David, do the successes wash his flaws away? Is that, is that, is that how he is a man after God's own heart? Is that how God judges things based on a merit system? I mean, as long as your successes line up a little higher than your failures, then you're a man after God's own heart. Is that, is that what, what God is saying? No. As you look at David's life, there are two characteristics that, that, that evidence David's pursuit of God. 
Now, before I jump into them, just a note about each. He didn't live with these two characteristics in a perfect way. Neither of them. But that's what makes David so attainable for us. It was imperfect pursuit of who God is in these characteristics. But they would mark a general idea of, of, of what, what his life would look like. Here, let me, let me throw the first one. The first one is this. He treated his sin seriously. It's very different than King Saul, who we talked about last week, when Samuel approached King Saul and said, what are you doing? And King Saul's response was, well, the troops were freaking out. The Philistines were going to come get me, and you hadn't shown up yet. I mean, he blamed everybody, but he never took his own ownership for his own sin. David was very different. That census that he took in 2 Samuel 24, when Joab came back and gave him the results of the census, David's heart was heavy, and it says that he repented and said, I have sinned against God, and confessed it exactly as it was, his sin. A little bit more colorful is after Uriah has been murdered, and David's taken Bathsheba as his wife. There's another send that comes up in that story. It says that God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And when Nathan came to David's presence, how, how do you, okay, so put yourself in Nathan's position for a moment. Here you have the king of the land, the most powerful and respected man that exists today. And you have been called as the prophet of God to show up in his presence and to tell him he's a horrible sinner. There's a job I don't want. And yet Nathan shows up in front of David and the way he addresses the king is perfect. He says, let me, let me, can I ask your advice on something, King David? Sure, no problem. He says, okay, here's the deal. There's, there is this very rich man and this very poor man in the land. The very rich man has, has, has lambs and ewes. Like you I mean, they're just everywhere. His flocks are huge. But the poor man, the poor man has one ewe lamb that he purchased himself. This little lamb, it, it eats his food, drinks his cup, it sleeps in his arms. It's, it's, it's another child for this poor man. businessman comes into town and visits the wealthy man. The wealthy man can't bring himself to go out into his fields and get a lamb to slaughter for food, so instead he goes to the poor man's house and steals that little ewe lamb, brings it home, butchers it, and feeds it to the wealthy businessman. What should we do? And it says David is enraged. He owes that man four times what he took. I mean, he, David just goes and goes and goes. How dare he? He can't possibly do this. And Nathan looks at David in the face and says, yes, David, you're right. And you are that man. And his response is to repent, to blame no one else but himself, and to pen what we now know as Psalm 51. You want to turn there just for a moment. Keep your finger there in 2 Samuel. But go to Psalm 51. We hear David's response to Nathan's confrontation.
hear David's heart and remember the context which this is written in. He's sinned against Bathsheba. He's sinned against Uriah. He's being confronted by the prophet Nathan. And he says this, Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin because I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. When he is confronted with his sin, David immediately admits the seriousness of his sin. He admits the seriousness of his transgressions. He names them as his iniquity. He names it as sin. He names it as evil. David doesn't pull any punches and try to explain it away. He doesn't try to blame anybody else. He doesn't try to blame his, his surroundings, his environment, his education. He blames nothing, but he takes full ownership himself. In verse 3, he says, my sin is always before me. And when we sin against God, our, our sin is before us, but too often what we do is we crank the volume and everything else so we can't see it or hear it anymore. David doesn't do that. He says, it's ever before me, and I need to deal with it because it is so seriously. Verse 4, I have sinned against you, God, and only you, which is a crazy statement, isn't it? No, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He's even sinned against the nation of Israel by this foolish choice. But David understands that all sin flies in the face of God himself. When David was on that rooftop and he looked out over and he saw Bathsheba and he felt like she was something that God was holding back from him and he must have her, he deserved her, and so he got her. That's all of our sin. Thinking that God owes us something. It's rebelling against God. It's shaking our fist in God's face and telling God, we know better. We know what's best for us. I know what's going to satisfy this need that I have. And it's, in David's case, her. What's amazing about this psalm is David doesn't just be like, okay, Lord, forgive me of my sins. No, he goes all in. Let me, let me run through this. In verse 1, blot out my rebellion. Verse 2, wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop. Wash me. I want to be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let the bones that have been crushed, let them rejoice. Verse 9, turn your face away from me. Blot out all of my guilt. Verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me. Renew the steadfast spirit within me. 11, don't banish me. Don't turn away from me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me. Sustain me. Verse 14, save me from my guilt. David treated his sin seriously. He didn't come and repent because he was otherwise a good person. He came knowing his sin was serious and the only way he could get past it is because God is God, he is merciful, and God is pleased with humble repentance. Is that how you treat your sin? Are you a repenter? Is your life marked by keeping short sin accounts with God, agreeing with God about your sin, taking sin seriously? Is that, is that you? Because that's one of the characteristics that made David a man after God's own heart. He took sin seriously. Is that you? Have you asked your kids for forgiveness for speaking harshly to them this week? Have you asked God for his forgiveness for trying to take his place in your kids' lives? Have you asked your boss's forgiveness for being lazy? 
Have you asked God's forgiveness for, for presuming upon his ability to show up at the last minute and save the day for you because you've been lazy? Have you asked your long-lost friends forgiveness for the words you spoke years ago that were meant to tear them down? Have you asked God's forgiveness for your arrogance and pride in that situation? Have you asked your neighbor's forgiveness for lying to them? Have you asked God for his forgiveness for, for trying to please people and not trying to please him? That's David. When he was confronted with his sinfulness, he called it what it was. He didn't call it a mistake. He didn't call himself a product of his environment. When confronted with his sinfulness, he called it sin. And he called himself what he was, a sinner. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't make excuses based on family history, peer pressure, the demands that leadership bring. He didn't use passive language, talking about the dysfunction in his life. He saw his sins as an affront to God and he asked God to wash him. And he appealed not just to his own position or his personality, he appealed to God's mercy. Is that you? David treated his sins seriously and he extended grace to his enemies. It's a second characteristic of a person after God's own heart. You see Saul's relentless pursuit of David and David uh, affirming the fact that he is the king of Israel and he's not going to touch him. He's not going to lay his hands on him. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, 1 Samuel chapter 26, David had prime opportunity to take the life of King Saul. The first time, 1 Samuel 24, David is hiding in a cave. King Saul doesn't know he's in there. King Saul enters the cave that David is in to use the rest facilities. David, hiding back in the cave, sneaks up next to Saul, gets close enough to King Saul to cut the corner off of his robe. Saul finishes up, heads out the cave, and David appears in the mouth of the cave, and he's sorry. He's genuinely repentant that he cut the robe of God's anointed, but he cries out and says, look, am I chasing you, Saul? If I was chasing you, you'd be dead. Here's the corner of your robe, and Saul melts away to fake tears. Two chapters later, 1 Samuel chapter 26, it says uh, Saul and all his men were sleeping and Saul was in the middle and they slept and rose around the king to protect him. And, and, and David and one of his men simply tiptoed around everybody while they were sleeping and right up to King Saul. David's man said, let me, let me just run the sword through him. It'll only take once. I won't have to do it a second time. He will be dead. And David said, no, this is God's anointed. Let's just take his spear and his jug to freak him out a little. I like a sense of humor. And when Saul did pass, 2 Kings 1, sorry, 2 Samuel 1, um, records that David wept when he heard that his nemesis, the one who was trying to murder him, King Saul, had died. 2 Samuel chapter 3, you get a picture of, of the traitor named Abner, who, who had um, served the, the fake king Ishbosheth. Um, he, he returned, and, and when, David, uh, when he returned, David actually received him. And allowed him to return. And then just, just days later, David mourned when Abner, who had been a traitor, was murdered by Joab. 2 Samuel 9, turn there. 2 Samuel 9, this is a beautiful story that I don't have time to go into all the details, but, but we'll see where we go here, huh? 
Second Samuel 9, you see another extension of grace by David when, when he is ridiculously kind to this young man whose name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, the grandson of King Saul. We're told earlier in 2 Samuel that when King Saul and Jonathan are murdered, the nurses who were caring for little Mephibosheth picked him up, scooped him up, and began to run because they were afraid for their lives, which they should have been. Because in this day, the way a king claimed his throne and made sure that the, 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 the rulership was his was to remove the lives of everyone who was related to the previous king, to murder them all. So the nurses picked Mephibosheth up and they took off, but in the process, they dropped Mephibosheth. Little man, this little, little dude, probably three, four, maybe five years old, took a tragic fall and as a result, he was lame in his legs for the rest of his life. You get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and, 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 and King David had just contr- uh, guaranteed control of his entire kingdom, and he asked this question, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul? I mean, if you stop there, you know what he's asking. But he continues, is there anyone left from the family of Saul that I can show kindness to? And so in verse 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 5, King David had Mephibosheth brought from the house of Maker, son of Amuel in Lodabar. So David sends for Mephibosheth and says, bring him to me. Now, if you're Mephibosheth, you know what's next. You're brought into the presence of the king. You're a relative of the previous king. You know what's about to happen as Mephibosheth is brought into his presence. Verse 6, he says that he fell face down and he paid homage He began to to fall before David and make sure David knew without any question that he was subject to King David and his royalty. David's response is amazing. He says, Mephibosheth, verse 7, don't be afraid. I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields. And you will always meet, eat meals at my table. What David says to his sworn enemy's grandson is this. Hey, 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 don't be afraid. I want to show you kindness. Now, understand that word kindness is a covenant love. It's not a picture of something that is deserved. It's a picture of the goodness of the person who is showing that kindness. And David says, not because of anything you've done, Mephibosheth, but because of who I am, I want to show you kindness. And not only do I want to show you kindness, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you back all the land of your granddaddy. So now Mephibosheth just went from living in a place that if you literally translate the name, it means no man's land. And now he's got all the property he could want, property of royalty. But what's more amazing, he says, not only am I going to show you kindness, not only am I going to give you what you need, but I am going to treat you like my family. And you are going to eat your meals at my table with me, next to my sons, my daughters. You are one of us. You will never have need again. David extended grace to Mephibosheth. My favorite picture of David extending grace to his enemies. Look at just a few chapters later in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. <laughs> There's this uprising. David's son Absalom has, has um, started an uprising and is taking control and, and throwing a coup or an attempted coup. People are going after Absalom. And as, as David is, is basically escaping, as David is trying to get away, you, you get this situation starting in verse 5. King David got to Bahiram, a man who belonged to the family of the house of Saul, was coming out. He saw King David. This man's name was Shammai, son of Gerah. 
And this man was yelling curses as he approached David. Verse 6, he threw stones at David and at all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shammai said as he cursed, get out, get out of here, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You are in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. I mean, this dude's got some guts. This would be like standing on the side of the road when the president and all of his entourage, all the secret service are walking by, and you yelling these things at the president as you throw stones at the president. How do you think it's going to go for you? You won't be there long. And that's what these guys, the son of Zeruiah, I don't know, sorry, I messed that up, son of Zeruiah, I don't know how to say it, can you tell? Son of Z, we'll call him son of Z, there we go. Then Abishai, the son of Z, said to the king, why should this dead dog continue to curse us? Let me go over and just remove his head. I mean, I don't know if the Secret Service would do that, but it's an option. And David's response is, sons of Z, do we agree on anything? We're not going to kill him. We're not going to murder him. Man, we're going to leave him alone and let him say his thing, and, and we'll pray that the curses he's cursed down on us don't actually come to fruition and so, verse 13, David and his men proceeded along the road as Shammai was going along the ridge of the hill opposite of them. As Shammai went, he continued to curse David, throw stones at him, and kicked up dust. That's a joyful journey, isn't it? David had, had every right to not only have that man removed, but to have that man murdered. That's patience. But I think what's more amazing is you go forward a couple more chapters in chapter 19, You find this man mentioned again. Absalom's revolt has been crushed. David's kingdom is restored. He's brought both Judah and Israel together. He is, he is the king over all the people. He has demolished all of his enemies. There he stands. Verse 18, second half there. When Shammai, the son of Girah, crossed the Jordan... He fell face down before the king and said to him, My Lord, it's a different voice in case you're wondering. Don't hold me guilty. Please don't remember your servant's wrongdoing on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king not take it to heart. Your servant knows that I've sinned. But look, today I'm the first one of the entire house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Z, asked, shouldn't Shammai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David says, sons of Z, can we agree on anything? Although I could, this man will not be killed today. The king said to Shammai, verse 23, you will not die. And the king gave him his word. See, David extended forgiveness to the people who had rebelled against him. So David treated his sin seriously, and he extended grace to his enemies. Does that sound like anybody else? Do you want to know what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? What better example could there be than this? God is always eager to show grace and to show mercy. He's always willing to give traitors a second chance. Now, God treats sin seriously, but unlike David, he's never guilty of his own sin. God doesn't just welcome his enemies in. 
dies in their place. Jesus Christ died where you should have died. You don't deserve it, but he did it because sin is real and it's serious. Is there a better picture of God than that? What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It means to be a person who takes sin seriously and extends grace. David understood that. David knew who God was. And that's why David penned some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 22. As we close, I'm just going to read the, the first 20 verses. You hear the voice of David say this. The Lord's my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock. He is where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. You have saved me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. For the waves of death had engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help reached his ears. The earth then shook and quaked. The foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He bent the heavens to come down. Total darkness beneath his feet. My God rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wind, wings of the wind. He made darkness a canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. From the radiance of his presence, blazing coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High made his voice heard. He shot arrows and he scattered them. He hurled lightning boats and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. And he pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. The Lord was my support. He brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Recognize that God delights in you. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I pray that in these closing moments, that Father, we would commit to serve you, to love you, to know you, to pursue you, and to be men and women who are after God's own heart. Amen.